Hey, this is Norman Brannan from Antimatter Zine and Texas is the Reason, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with our first brand new episode of 2024. And it's a big one. We have Jeff Rickley of Thursday. Jeff has just released his first novel. It's called Someone Who Isn't Me. We go into a deep dive about the novel, which is great, by the way. And we cover everything else. Thursday history. No Devotion, United Nations, the Ink and Dagger Reunion, everything. This is a fantastic conversation. There's a lot of new stories that I haven't heard before, and I can't wait for you to hear it. That conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Reviews. We need Apple Podcast Reviews. Now, we're up to 166, so thank you everybody who has submitted a review. But we've got to get to 200. We've got to do it, and we've got to do it soon. Keep them coming. Spotify, we're doing great. We're up to 219. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, open up the app, search the new scene, scroll down a little bit, and hit that five-star button. And if you write a review, I'll read it at the end of the show. Shirts. We've got shirts for sale at Death Wish Inc. Long sleeve, short sleeve, you name it, we've got it. We are sold out of large in the long sleeve shirt, but we've got every other size. Grab one before they're gone. And you can always email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Hot Water Music. The 30th anniversary tour kicks off in 2024 with Quicksand. Check their pages for a full list of dates. Rebuilder will be performing on Cruise Askew. That's the J and Silent Bob Cruise, which takes place February 23rd through 26th. Check Rebuilder's page for more information on that cruise. Jerome's Dream have East Coast tour dates in February. Check out their page or the Iodine page for a full list of dates. Dead Bars just released Jukebox Volume 1. This is two new cover songs that are available now, everywhere, to stream. They covered Morphine, they've covered Credence, Clearwater Revival. Go check it out. Bucket Full of Teeth, the discography, is up now and available for streaming. The pre-order is also up for the vinyl. That's four LPs covering the whole discography. And finally, Quicksand and the Iron Roses will be part of the Punk Rock Bowling Fest in Las Vegas. That's this May. Passes are on sale now. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Death Wish Inc. That's right. Death Wish Inc. is back to sponsor the new scene for the month of January. And here's some updates. The Hope Conspiracy have just surprise released their first new music in 14 years. The EP is called Confusion, Chaos, Misery. It's here and it's fantastic. 
pick up some vinyl and merch today. Death Heaven, the Sunbather remaster is out. There's new vinyl, there's new merch. Go get some. Acclaimed artist Richie Beckett has a new Death Wish Inc. store with new merch designs. The shirts look awesome. Go pick one up. So go follow them on Instagram at Death Wish Inc. Or check out the website at deathwishinc.com. All right, so listen, check back in with me in segment three. A lot has happened since the last time we checked in. I saw Piebald play a gig in Brooklyn. I saw This Will Destroy You last night. They played a gig in Manhattan. It's New Year's Day. There's a lot going on. There is a lot for us to catch up with. But right now, we are going to speak to Jeff Rickley of Thursday. Enjoy. We are here now with Jeff Rickley. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, Jeff, it's great to have you here. You know, there's a lot going on with you. You just put out your first novel this year, Someone Who Isn't Me. You have a very rich history in music, Thursday, No Devotion, United Nations. And look, we're going to cover all of that and maybe even more. But first, I want to ask you, how are you doing today? Well, I'm sick. Uh, looks like maybe COVID time four. Uh, so I'm a little under the weather, but you know, nothing that uh, nothing that should bleed through the microphone. Oh no, fourth time. Yeah, it seems like everybody is getting it again, and uh, I am t- I am anticipating that for myself, which I don't want. But hey, what are we going to do, right? Yeah, I mean, my job basically most of the year is letting strangers spit in my eyes. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> when they're singing at you, it's kind of it's kind of like inevitable. Yeah, when shows opened back up and, you know, the people would get out on stage and wouldn't wear masks and the singer would just jump out into the crowd and get out there, I was like, they are so brave. I, I guess, but it's like, it's sort of like, what's the alternative? You know what I mean? Put up like a a plastic barricade in the front of the stage and keep away. It's, it, it would sort of kill live music in, in my opinion. I think you're right, especially in our world of music. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff, it's great to have you here. I just finished reading your book, oh, Someone right. Who Isn't Me. Yeah, I'm so thanks for taking the time to do that. Yeah, it was really great. You know, I had no idea what it was about when I heard it was coming out. And I, I like to go into media blind sometimes because yeah. it's just fun, right? Like a movie or a book, just, just jump in and see what it's at. And I didn't realize it was autobiographical fiction. Mm-hmm. And once I started reading it, I just, I didn't put it down until it was done. Wow, thank you, Keith. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and I I really connected with it because I went through many of the same things that you did Mm -hmm. in the same neighborhoods Mm -hmm. at the same time. So, 
there was just a lot of connection there, streets that you named, locations that you named, you know, I'm, I'm close to, I've been close to. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. There was that whole level to it as well. So when did you originally conceive the idea for this book? Uh, right around the time I was getting sober, um, which now is about, oh boy, now it's about six years ago. And uh, I needed something to do to stay like on the couch, basically. You know what I mean? Um, I had a, a counselor who was like, you know, if you're up and out and walking around the same neighborhood that you used to cop in, like you're going to end up high again. Like that is, that's just the way this works, you know? Um so he said, you know, get like a PlayStation. I got like a PlayStation, started killing zombies or whatever. And then, <laughs> and then I was like, that's only so interesting when you compare it to like a heavy drug. You know what I mean? So, um, so the book was kind of like a, a really good, it was a really good project to throw myself into. You know, I, I think I'm probably a workaholic a little bit. And so I kind of have to keep my mind busy or else, you know, I go astray. Yeah, I'm the same way. I didn't realize that once I got clean, also around six and a half years ago, uh, spring of 2017. Nice. I had interests, but I lost them all once I got addicted. And then as soon as I got clean, I picked them back up, but I didn't even realize it. Before I knew it, I was editing video, audio, doing this, doing that. Oh, and it sounds like you jumped into the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like had a, a, a little podcast for a while and stuff too. But then I realized pretty quickly that like, I'm not good at that and that I don't enjoy editing audio like very much. You know, I've done a lot of audio editing, you know, before Thursday was ever a band. I did intern in a recording studio for a long time. That's how we ended up at the studio where we did our first three records. Um, I did work on you know, things like the first My Chemical Romance record. And and so I have a lot of, um, I've done a lot of editing, especially of drums and vocals. And you'd think that maybe that'd be something that I'd be good at or I'd enjoy, but it's not the case. Um, I know how to do it. And I like, it's just one of those things. It makes me, it makes me insane because, you know, if you hear it and you're like, oh, I'm going to take that person's um out. I'm going to take that person's like pop out. I'm going to take it. And then I started, I would, you know, spend hours and hours and hours on one episode. And then at the end I'd hear it and I'd be like, it's not much better. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it really didn't make much of a difference. So uh, yeah, that was like not good for my whatever level of OCD I have. Right, right. I can relate. So once you started writing this book, what's the process? How long does it take? Go through some of that for us. Yeah, I would start at... um you know, basically I would make a coffee and start. That's how I would start my day every day. My mind seemed the most active in the morning, which when, you know, when I was going through harder periods in my life, that was like sort of a curse. I'd wake up and my mind would be racing. So I kind of try to put that to use as like the time that I would start writing in the morning. And um, I would do anywhere between four and six hours, usually right around five. I would do a day and I'd do about five days of that a week. And that took me about five years. Um, I did take some classes, um, you know, did some workshops where, you know, I opened some of the sections up to criticism so that I could get some feedback and try to understand what was working, what wasn't working. And then I found an agent and she really became like my partner in the book. You know, she would scrap whole chapters and be like, I actually think the last third of the book stinks. You got to rewrite it. You know what I mean? Just like, whoa, brutal. Um, <laughs> but very, very helpful. And and I could definitely couldn't finish the book without her. Wow. Five years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many revisions do you think you went through? 12. 12 full rewrites of the book. 
12 full rewrites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it was down to like 189 pages and then up to 400 yeah. and then down again. Yeah, yeah. I, I have so much, like the middle book for people who don't know anything about the book, the middle book is sort of written as like a continuous hallucination. Um, and that one sort of doubles in a way, one long hallucination of sort of like a band memoir for Thursday in some ways. And, um, you know, a surreal one. Um, but all the kind of like, dreamy more surreal stuff i had so much more you know what i mean i had like a a chapter that was like an aa meeting with like all these other singers like bruce springsteen and bon jovi there's like all new jersey singers and like like, uh you know bon jovi kept on being like kind of like you know i'm the most famous one here like saying stuff like that and then people would kind (laughs) of start ragging on bon jovi and bruce would be like no man john's a real artist like he was like it was just like you know i went really deeply off some surreal tangents and, um, and I had a lot of fun doing it, but you know, ultimately I had to rein it in and get it to where the plot was moving. And you, and you know, like, I'm so glad to hear you say that you read it kind of in this one burst. Um, that was kind of where I wanted to get it by the end where it was like nothing, nothing took you so far out of it that you wanted to put it down. Yeah. Once I started reading it, I just went right through it until it was done. And it really does move at a brisk pace it's like a page turner you know like i could i could envision the entire movie in my head as it was happening and i couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next what did you have to do to make that happen did you have to like rewrite the whole book and redo the pace to get it right i mean uh, like what what was some of the process yeah absolutely i mean when so i first went my agent went out on submission like so she tried to sell the book um at probably i'd say like the eighth or the ninth draft And she sent it out like the week before the first COVID lockdown hit. And so we had gotten like maybe one or two answers back, maybe three. And suddenly like nobody worked in the publishing industry anymore. So everybody we had sent it to was like, you know, furloughed or fired or, you know, whatever was happening. Kind of the whole media landscape fell apart in that moment. And um, the one thing that everybody said was, you know, it's beautiful. It's atmospheric. It's slow. Um, and I kept thinking like, oh, it's slow. Like it's atmospheric. Like I don't, I don't want it to be slow. You know what I mean? So, and I was like, you know, and my, my agent was like, whatever they're they're you know, if it's not what they're looking for, if it's not like, if it's not the new fuck boy, if it's not the new, like this or that, like they don't care. Like they just want the hot new thing. Like, like I wouldn't take their criticism to heart. And I was kind of like, yeah, but like more than one person said slow, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not like, yeah. A, and then I, I let my dad read it and he was like, is it supposed to be slow? <laughs> oh no. And I was like, no, okay, it's too slow. So I went back and the thing that the main thing that I changed is I changed the beginning. Um originally I had this section that happens like sort of right after the climax of the book. There's this section that's kind of like an essay talking about like death. And it's like bodies can fail in all, you know, all sorts of ways or whatever. And um that was originally the opening, like this long meditation on death. And I really like, I loved it. I thought it was like the strongest part of the book in some ways, but it is like the first 20 pages talking about like all these different ways people can die. And that was kind of like, okay, if I move that and kind of like pick up right off the start with something that I love, like music, you know what I mean? And my pursuit of music and kind of like my addiction to music and all those things, you know, it's kind of like... I want to get people invested in it the way I am. You know what I mean? Where you just start talking about things you love. And um, yeah, that changed a lot. 
Yeah, I thought the pacing was perfect. You know, I thought there was going to be a big lead up to some chaos. And I, I love reading about some chaos. But mm-hmm. pretty soon when we get into this book, you're running around Greenpoint, getting high, raising hell. And I'm like, yes, this I can relate to. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like, there are a lot of chapters that I threw out of kind of like prelude. And at some point I realized it's like, you know, if you're telling the story of a band, which I do in the middle part a little bit, you don't mm-hmm. really have to say how the band got together because most bands get together because the people meet each other somehow. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can just kind of be like, okay, like they met and it's, you know what I mean? So I sort of like, I started having these realizations, like, you know, what part of the story you have to tell. And my agent would always say like, you don't have to tell people that you walked across the room and you sat on your butt. Like people will get, like, you can just be like, I went and sat down or whatever. You know what I mean? You can kind of skip like the extra information. Like everybody gets how you sit down. So, um, yeah, that really helped. It was like, okay, what don't I need in here? How can I get rid of it? <laughs> the book goes into great detail about your addiction experience, which I'm curious about. So mm-hmm. when did it turn from medicine to misery yeah. for you? Yeah, the magic to me- to medicine to misery cycle. Um, I guess that was probably like 2015-ish. Um you know, some people probably don't know, but for a few years, I was running a record label out of an office in Greenpoint. Um, we had some great bands. I put out the f- first Touche Amore record. That was kind of like my first record that I put out on on Collect. Um, and I had had a lot of experience, you know, my chemical romance and some other stuff. You know, I helped uh, Murder by Death get their start. And um, so I started doing this label because I was able to get an investor. And I had a lot of stuff going on with the label. We were partnering with a lot of other labels and distribution. And, um, you know, we were putting out, uh, we made the, the nothing record tired of tomorrow together. And then, uh, we made the hotelier record. Um, and we just, we were really on a roll and then our investor kind of became the most hated man in the world. Uh, like sort of overnight, he became a sensation and, yep. uh, that's Martin Shkreli. And, um, you know, it, it was quite a shock because, uh, I just kind of knew him as like, this kid who liked Touche Amore and, and somehow had like a ton of money from some sort of financial, you know, whatever he worked on wall street or so, something, you know, like I wasn't totally clear about everything. And it was pretty wild to watch the whole label sort of collapse around me and also sort of find out like, Oh, like, am I going to be canceled for the guy that was like writing our checks or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, this is so wild. Like I was just trying to put out records and I found somebody who was willing to pay for it, you know? Yeah. Um, it was like a really, and because I was an addict at the time and I was using like, it's sort of everything turned dark. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything got real, real dark around then. And I started using more to combat pain than to like try and, you know, experience anything good. And, you know, as, as we all know, there's only so long the medicine works and then it stops working and it's like, Oh man, this is just misery. You know, there's various degrees of feeling bad and they're all shit. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I um I'm going to speak in generalities because I still work a corporate job and I don't like them to know about this part of my life, but when uh when I turned where you turned, mm-hmm. you know, I found that things fell apart pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's hard to maintain that. I mean in the book you you mention uh 20,000 in credit card debt, three bundles a day, in trouble with drug dealers, like was a lot of that true? Some of that is, yeah, more than I'd like of it is true, yeah. Um, 
most of the things that were changed were timeline things. Um, you know, I wanted to put a lot of these kind of like, um, I guess I'd call them inciting incidents where like something crazy happens and the character is forced to make a decision, you know, usually a bad decision in the case of this character. I put them all sort of like in a couple days. I didn't want to have to like, it's, it's a weird thing to say, but if you go back and look at the first third of the book, there's no like real, he doesn't talk about the past. It's all in the present tense. I wanted him to feel like he was trapped in like a moment that he couldn't get out of. And that includes like memory. That includes like, he doesn't see a future. That's just like, he's stuck right now. And, um, so like, I couldn't talk about like, oh, this thing had happened last week and now this is happening this week. And, you know, I wanted it all to be happening kind of in real time, like in a couple days. So that was like one of the biggest changes that's not real is I put all these events that happened over the course of a couple of years into like one week. And then I cut out a bunch of characters because there was one draft where my agent was like, you got a lot of white guys with similar names in this book. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that is fair. That is fair. Why do I know so many guys with the same names? Um, and I kind of made a joke out of that when I introduced like the characters, like the band characters, the Thursday members, Tim, Tom and Tucker, you know, sort of like I made a little like that was kind of like a goof. So you could remember them together, the three of them, because I wanted to sort of like develop the band as like a like basically we became like each other as the as as the band wore on. We became like one entity rather than a bunch of different characters. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what changed most of what you read in there. Like the horrible circumstances; those are those are pretty much all real. Yeah, I uh, I had a similar thing going on. You know, uh, I had a great paying job, but I lived with four roommates, thirty uh, k credit card debt, mm-hmm. over six credit cards, all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you really did get ibogaine treatment. I did. Yes, I went to Mexico and and took ibogaine. Yeah. And did the great Don Devore from the Almighty Ink and Dagger actually? recommend this to you in real life he really did he really did don's uh don's kind of like been my guardian angel a couple times which is like yo if don is your guardian angel you are fucked up like you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, no i love don but he is like you know he's like the andy warhol of hardcore like he is like a enigmatic figure um and he's like sort of secretly behind a lot more than sort of anybody really realizes. Um, I think he's like one of the few true geniuses with the guitar of the last 30 years. You know, there's him, there's Kevin Shields, there's a couple guys, but he's like one of them, you know? And, um, and I was really lucky that I had lived with him for a few years so that he, you know, was looking out for these kind of esoteric cure. You know, it's like, I think if he was like, this lady knows a magic spell that'll work, I probably would have tried that too, <laughs> you know? like Right, right. <laughs> So it, that must have been some experience. I mean, was it uh, obviously it's uh, probably put more into narrative and uh, expounded upon in the book? But yeah. I mean, how was it? How was it going through that? A lot more chaotic. Yeah, the, more chaotic. The real life was a lot more like. So you sign up for you do sign up for a psychedelic therapist to unpack it all with you for like six months. Like you can't even get the treatment without signing up for that. And so a lot of the kind of like narrative and understanding of what was happening during the trip comes later when you talk about it. Cause so much of it is just like flashing images where you're like, wait, that could mean this or that could mean that. Like there was even a time where I was literally like, you know, there's a scene in there where I see, I, I ask the drug to show me my true self and it shows me, you know, it shows me like the, it shows me Adolf Hitler, you know, like a, a classic evil, um, archetype of like, of the bad, you know? And, um, you know, there was like a month in there where I was like, 
so in a past life was I like, this is crazy. Like, I don't feel like I'm actually Hitler, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then like, you know, the therapist, I'd be like, no, that's just sort of like your brain saying that you hate yourself. That's, that's what that is that you like, think that you're a truly bad person. Like you don't think that you're good. And I had to say like, okay, that's fair. I can see that. Like I'm beyond hard on myself to the point where I just think like anything bad that I've ever done, it's because I'm evil. It's not because like I was hurt or in a weird position or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The book talks about the journey going through that, getting to the root of yourself and you and the other people there needed to figure out who you were. So was that it? Would I mean, did you, did you find out what the root of yourself was? Was it that you just, you didn't know yourself or you hated yourself? Um, yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, I think part of the, the the way that the book is structured, you know, the book is structured in these concentric circles that go in and in and in. And I base that on like, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno, like the different circles of hell that he goes through. Um, mm -hmm. But I structured it like the circles of a record, you know, you're going in that you're going inwards towards the center of the vinyl. And, um, and in a way, all those circles are like, the circles of the self. So you peel off like the onion of the thousand different versions of yourself that you think you are. And then what do you get in the middle of a record? The idea I had was like, you fall through the center because there is no center, you know, in, in the center, you find only again yourself, you know what I mean? In this case, it was a child, but, um, but yeah, I had this idea that like, there is no root, you know what I mean? It's just layers. <laughs> there's nothing underneath, you know, there's no like great epiphany. There's just like, you find the center of yourself and it's still just still just you, <laughs> you know? Um, I had a much darker even version of the book where there was literally nothing in the center. And, um, you know, when Norman who plays in Texas is the reason and now plays in Thursday, when Norman read that, he was like, dude, I think you're a Zen Buddhist. He's like, I think you are like some of this stuff that you're saying, it's like, so Zen Buddhist, like, you don't even know, you should really check it out. Like, cause he is, you know what I mean? So he's just like, yeah. I'm telling you, like, the way you think about the world is like that Zen Buddhism. <laughs> so I've been a lot more interested in that since then. But, uh, but yeah, there are, there are a couple different versions of them and all of them had to do with trying to find the self, you know, this self that can save you, not the self that will kill you. Cause I think that's sort of where I was at was I, all I saw was myself and it was killing me. Right. Because you know, the recurring imagery through the book, you can't see yourself in the reflection or you don't recognize yourself when you do see yourself. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot. I mean, you probably noticed, but there's a lot of doubling. There's a lot of like only seeing the reflection in the in the shop windows, like not seeing, you know what I mean? Not really seeing the actual self, but seeing instead somehow seeing a double, you know, like mm. the doppelganger. Um, and I think like in that way, you know, the David David Lynch is always kind of doing that in his films too. You know, there's the there's the good Dale and the bad Dale and Twin Peaks. You know, there's the version of you that's stuck in the white the Black Lodge and the version of you walking around out. And I think that's all like very Jungian archetypal stuff. And um, and I find that stuff really really fascinating. I, I've always been obsessed with it. Even in Thursday lyrics, there's lots of stuff about doubles. So um, wait, they had you smoke uh, DMT mm -hmm. after the ibogaine treatment. Mm -hmm. Wow, what an intense uh, program here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could barely walk again. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, wait, we're doing that now? Like, <laughs> oh, man. And uh, But it made sense because, like, literally, like, there was stuff that I didn't include in there that happened in those three days where it was like, it was like a mutiny. It was like every single person that I was with on that. Like, I was just, like, kind of in a daze, like, I could barely move. But the people that were, like, up and walking around were kind of, like, popping off, like, I'm calling them cops to come get me you're trying to kill me you know it was like that where they were like 
And he was like, no, it's going to be better after you smoke DMT. Like, you'll see. That's why we added it to the program. People get too low after the Ibogaine, you know, because you see a lot of repressed memories. You know, it is very hard physically. Like, you cannot walk for a few days afterwards. And um, so, yeah, people were like in a dark place. You know what I mean? They were feeling like there was one one person was suicidal. And, you know, it was, it was really, really harsh. And then after the DMT, everybody's like crying and smiling and like drinking juice and being like, life is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I get why they do it. It's like, you got to kick them out of that dark place. Wow. So uh, I guess it worked. Did you stay clean when you got home? Um, you, you know, yes and no. Like, I think I the the sort of like, physical dependency was lifted, um, which was like a miracle. But there was a time period in the first year where I was like, I can still drink or, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not really like a fan of cocaine, maybe I can do cocaine. You know what I mean? Like, just like had some ideas that were comically bad. Um, It's like, why not? You know what I mean? Like, I almost killed myself already. Like, why not not be careful with this gift that I've been given of freedom from heroin, you know? Um, (laughs) So luckily, by the end of that year, so that was like, I did I began during Donald Trump's inauguration. That's like when it takes place. And then by that Halloween that year, so like seven months later, I like was fully committed to the program and got my sobriety date and was like, I'm not going to I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to, you know, whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah. I tried that too. Substitution or just drinking or just doing these drugs and then uh, just going to meetings, but not talking to anybody or doing anything. And none of that worked. And then I had to commit uh, as much as I didn't want to. And and now here we are. I know. I know. It's like, I'm not, no, I don't want to commit. That's, that sucks. That's for losers. And then you do it and you're like, oh, this is so much easier and better. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like the only person I was hurting was me by not doing this. It's so much better. Yeah. Well, I don't know why it's so much bigger in the mind, but when I actually Uh just did the things, it was like, oh, this really isn't that big a deal. Yeah. Even when I started, like, so after I had some time, I was kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't seem that much better. Like, I'm, I don't know if I'm like really getting anything out of this. Like, I kind of like feel bummed or I feel, I feel weird. And then I heard this guy speak at a meeting. He said, you know, you got to do your first year, right? You got to do, you know, you got to get a coffee commitment. You got to get a like cleanup commitment. You got to like call three guys a day. You got to get a sponsor. You got to work the steps. And I was like, oh man, I'm like almost through my first year. I didn't do it any of that stuff like I guess it's too late and I'm screwed and he goes the thing about your first year is you can do it anytime you can start your first year now and I was like okay okay like I can start now I can commit fully and do everything as they say now like even though I've already got like whatever six months nine months whatever it was at that point like I can go hard now you know so I did in 90 and 90 and did all the stuff and then all of a sudden it was like oh my god I'm not even thinking about drugs anymore you know what I mean it's just like before I knew it I was just like Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny how it works like that. Uh, was the first year hard for you? Like I, even though I was doing all the things, right? Uh, all, well, most of the things they suggest for the entire first year, I had like serious, serious cravings and even almost relapsed a couple times. And it wasn't until I guess around nine months, one year when I got the one year coin that I finally was like out of danger of immediate relapse. How was it for you? <laughs> Yeah, like at a year, I remember get, like going to the meeting, getting the coin, everybody cheering and me just being like, is this it? Like, I'm still thinking about drugs right now. Like, I'm still thinking yeah. like, what age do I get to where I'm allowed to do them again? Like 90? If I make it to 90, do I get to do it again? Because that'll at least will give me something to look forward to. Yeah. 
And I still think that <laughs> it was so dark. <laughs> I was like, damn, I don't, I don't know. And I remember like maybe a year and seven days or like a year and 10 days. I thought, wait a second, when's the last time I thought about drugs? And it was like two days earlier. So I had two full days of not thinking about it once. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, oh, wow. Like I, I could, I could be free. You know what I mean? Not just like I'm not doing them, but actually be free. Because like, you know, it's kind of like once you go down a certain amount of time with, you know, a harder drug, it sort of like does become your master. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's sort of a sad, dark thing. But Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it, like in the book, you know, your dealer, you keep running into him and he keeps trying to get in touch with you. That actually happened to me. My dealer kept trying to get in touch with me for like a year afterwards. So I must have been a fantastic customer. Yeah, yeah, for real. Sometimes <laughs> I think about that too. I'm like, man, I was, I'm, that guy lost his best customer. I don't see him. I live in the same neighborhood and I don't see him at all. And all I can think is like, he would always tell me about all the different court cases he had open. I'm just like, man, I wonder, he's probably still not out on the street anymore. Because at some point, like some of them sounded, some of them sounded dire. I remember thinking like, oh man, I'm going to have to find another drug dealer. <laughs> that's right where the mind goes it's yeah i know like i wasn't like i was like oh bummer for you man but for me it's scary i got it's know. gonna be real bad <laughs> i remember this one guy who helped me get like some drugs in chinatown once he was like look we have to cop like right in front of all those like police you know what i mean like we we have to it's, you know and i was just like that's a lot of police over there we have to do that like literally in broad daylight in front of them. and he's like yeah and i was like but we're not going to get arrested and he goes no the only thing you have to know is if you do get arrested, tell him, tell him you want to go straight to Rikers. And I was like, Rikers? And he was like, yeah, because in Rikers, they'll give, you, they'll give you methadone. They'll give you methadone in Rikers. In the local, in the county jail, they won't. You'll just have to withdraw. He's like, it doesn't matter. Rikers sucks, but like, at least you, you, can, you don't have to be sober for it. And like, wow. that really stuck with me that it's like, okay, go to Rikers is better. You know what I mean? Like, that's how dark it is that you're like, I'll go to Rikers Island if it'll keep me high, you know? Uh, Great tip. Yeah, like, wow. You know, you have to be pretty far down to like choose to go to Rikers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so uh, I loved the scene in the book where you're you're with Don in the church and he's painting over everything black and you said, uh, Ink and Dagger, greatest hardcore band ever. And you referenced the time you saw them in 1997 mm. uh, at the First Unitarian Church. And I agree with you. It's certainly, it's one of my favorite bands of all time. and. De uh, I would say definitely my favorite heavier band of all time, mm -hmm. uh, even though they went in different directions. But mm -hmm. I bring this up because you were part of the Ink and Dagger reunion yeah. in uh, 2010, I think it was. Yeah, that was a real crazy time. Um, and a real, you know, obviously a dream come true to a certain extent. It was also sort of like a nightmare because I thought, like, rightly so. This is not me being modest, but like nobody, there is no replacing Sean. Sean, a big part, you know, a, there are two huge factors in that band. One, the sort of brilliant genius of Don DeVore making that music. And two, the danger and the intellect of Sean. So Sean McCabe, you know, real hero of mine. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't have, like, I'm not, I don't have any of what Sean has. You know what I mean? Like, he was my hero. Like, don't get me wrong, but I can't do that, you know? And so I really had to spend like a year not just learning the songs in a way where they 
they felt like a part of my brain. But, you know, to where like, literally, when we started rehearsing, I was like, no, 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 you play this thing here. And then you wait and you hit this beat and you over there, you go into this role and they'd be like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's how you know what I mean? Like, I knew their songs better than they did when we got back together. (laughs) (laughs) I had really, really like lived with it and lived in it. And, um, but the hard thing was like, how do I empty myself out of myself to make space for like the respecting of Sean and his legacy. And like one of the things that I said to Don really early on is like, I don't want to say anything between songs. Like I know that as hardcore band, like you want somebody calling out what to do, but like, no, that's, that's Sean's mic. I will say, I will sing his words as like a vehicle for him, but I don't want to inject any of my ideas. You know what I mean? And so it was like a really like, it's one of the harder things I've ever done. And like, I'm proud of, of how much I put into it. But, you know, it's still Jeff from Thursday singing for Ink and Dagger. You know what I mean? It's not it's not the the almighty Ink and Dagger of of the 90s. You know what I mean? Like that was its own. I mean, I was scared when I'd be at their shows, you know, like when the lights would go out and like the strobe would come on. You never knew what was going to happen. You know, it's like, right. are they going to break pens and throw ink all over? Is it going to get in your eyes? Like, is somebody going to be like hanging off a chandelier? Like, it was just chaos, you know, and I loved it. Oh, it was the best. They were they are one of a kind. But I can tell you from an outsider perspective, I was really happy that the reunion was happening because I only saw them one time around the time a uh, Fine Art of Original Sin came out. Mm-hmm. It was at the church. Mm-hmm. And I I had I, heard all the stories and, uh, you know, a lot of the hype. And I did I had never heard them before, though. And I, oh, wow. I watched that show. And I had a similar experience to you and where I was completely blown away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they eventually became my favorite band. I only saw them that one time. So when I heard they were playing again and that you were going to be stepping in for vocals, I was just happy because I had met you previously and I knew how much you loved, genuinely mm-hmm. loved the band. So I was like, well, this is this is the right combination. That's cool. I really I really appreciate that, Keith. I mean, I think it's, it's very easy to be cynical about it. You know what I mean? Uh, what Thursday does and what like I bring to Thursday is so different that I, I could understand why there's a certain segment of hardcore kids that were like, no, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, not him. Um, it should be Greg from Dillinger. It should be this guy. You know what I mean? There were, I heard a lot of ideas that I was like, that's not a bad, like I would always tell Don, like, that's not a bad idea. Like maybe we should have multiple people. And he'd be like, no, it's not, a, it's not a clown show. It's not a circus. And I'd be like, okay. He's like, it's a band. There's a singer. I was like, yeah. okay. All right. And, um, and I got what he was saying. The good thing is that like, after that, this is hardcore that we, that we did. Um, I felt like even the kind of like the skeptics were like, all right, that was actually pretty, like he did a good job. You know what I mean? Like, I think like the spirit of the thing, it wasn't about me. It wasn't important that, you know what I mean? Like the crowd was there, the band was there. It like, I was the guy holding the microphone. You know what I mean? Like I didn't try to make it about me. And I don't think that that mattered. I think everybody who loved that band's like went above and beyond and like kind of got to be there together. It felt, it felt like a mass or something. You know what I mean? Like it felt like this important thing. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's a that's a perfect description. In fact, as you're describing it, I'm thinking about the show and I'm getting chills running down my spine again. So it's a, I love it. It's awesome. In the book, you mentioned that you were really fucked up at the shows because you were scared and Sean was your idol and there was so much pressure. Was that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all were. I mean, that's the thing is like, I was like, probably going to be really different than it was in the 90s because you know they've all been through so much and instead it was kind of like um you know 
they brought out the chaos in each other being back together. <laughs> That's all I can say. It was, <laughs> there was chaos. I mean, we, I don't know if you know how that ended, but um, we did a European tour because they were very adamant oh, really? about, yeah, we were, they were very adamant about like the first time the band split up in Europe. Like, so we got to go along the path and end in Europe and like finish that tour. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this thing's already <laughs> killing me. Like it's so hard, but like, let's do it. So we get out there and it's like every night who's like trying to buy like the bathtub speed from like the sound guy with a dent in his head. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was <laughs> like chaos. And then we lost a member, like literally lost a member and had to stop playing shows. Cause we were like, he might be dead. I'm not going to like blow up anybody's spot or say who it was or anything like that. But it was like, there was a, we were a man down and we were all like, okay, we can't play the rest of the shows without him. And so we can't pick up any of the money and we can't get to like the last city all the way across the continent where our flight goes home from. So first we should try and find him, make sure he's not dead. And then like one day, like an Instagram notice pops up and he's like home back in the U S and I was like, Oh God. I was like, did somebody leave and go home without telling us? And we thought they were like dead. Like it was so insane that, I mean, then that's how it ended. You know what I mean? So the second, the ending of like the reunion was totally chaotic too. Like a total, yeah, it was something else. You really, uh, you really retained <laughs> the spirit of ink and dagger. I love that. Yeah. yeah painfully. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read a story that, uh, back in the day, Sean, played your basement in New Brunswick where you used to have shows and he, he sold your TV. <laughs> so they weren't playing that night. Um, but he was there at the show and he had the TV in his arms and like, it was seemed to me that maybe he was taking it to go sell. And I was like, Hey, that's our TV, which obviously like it's in our living room. And he was like, Oh, and he put it down. <laughs> so like that answer like oh okay it's yours <laughs> like he just like it was weird like i wasn't even mad i was like oh okay now he knows and then i thought about it later i was like he definitely knew like it was plugged in in our living room you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> the the stories of him are legendary he was like a huge idol of mine too and i when i was young i was i kind of tried to be a hellraiser too but i just didn't have it in me so it, it didn't yeah, pan out yeah me neither me neither i, I tried. he's one of a kind he really was one of a kind and like they found this wild thing right before we started rehearsing so while we were driving around after rehearsals because we did rehearsals in philly you know like went back to the source like did it right so i was staying in philly with them and they found this CD of all these prank calls that he had made. And so we would drive around listening to Sean prank calling. And the best ones, he would prank call their drummer, Terry. Because Terry was also in Prima, the Krishna band. And so he would call up Terry's dad and say all this crazy stuff to him and be like, is Terry home? Can he come out and play? Or is he, like, is he with his little blue friend? You know what I mean? Like, like kind of making fun of him for being Krishna or whatever. I mean, all of them were like, wild and offensive and like just like it made me smile to get to hear like that spirit again wow yeah he uh, i mean yeah even listening to him talk like you said you made the decision not to talk between songs when you watch those old videos and you hear the things that he says between songs it's just like it's just so captivating and like one of a kind yeah there's like they did a live performance on WKDU. Yeah, the WKDU. That's it. Yep. It's so unreal. The stuff that he says between songs. It's like 
it's always like both a poetry and a joke at the same time. He was like so advanced, you know what I mean? Like he can make you laugh and make you think and also like sort of have it be like a deeper, more beautiful thing if you thought about it. I mean, he had an Aphex twin tattoo in the hardcore scene back then. Like he was just so ahead of his time. You know what I mean? There's no shape of punk to come without Ink and Dagger. There's no, like there's so much that came from, from that band. A hundred percent. So Thursday, you're yes. in this band. Yes. Yes. Now, we know that you had a meteoric rise mm. after the release of Full Collapse. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about uh, the time around when War All the Time came out. Mm -hmm. And that's your Island Records debut. I mean, was the band happy? <laughs> was the label happy? How were things? Well, you know, so Full Collapse comes out on... I'll give you just a little quick backstory. Full Collapse comes out on Victory. They say... You know, there's no single here. Tony's like, I just don't hear it. You know, the person <laughs> fi fired the person that signed us, right? So, like, he's kind of like, you know, you guys are, you know, whatever. Maybe there's something we can do with it, but you're certainly never going to sell as many records as Hatebreed. And we're like, fair enough. Hatebreed sells like 75,000 copies of their record on an indie. That's like unheard of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but we're like, but we think we could do something, you know? Like, it's not all is not lost, you know? Yeah. So, um, it comes out, it kind of sells 700 copies, drops off, and then that's kind of it. We're playing basements and, and touring like VFW halls and playing in Nobody. We're playing huge shows where people walk out before we even play. It's just like, it's almost comical. Like nobody even wants to hear what we have going. So we're just kind of like, all right, well, that's weird. Then we get on the Murder City Devils tour and people start like sort of noticing us and noticing that we're doing something like a little bit different. And then we get on the Saves the Day tour and somehow at the same time, understanding the car crash starts getting played on MTV too. The band blows up like literally over the course of a month to where, you know, we're one of four on this tour. And before the end of the tour, we've booked a headlining tour two months later where we're playing bigger places even than we're opening one of four and the shows are already selling out. You know what I mean? So we're one of four on, on this one, but but on the next tour, we're going to be headlining bigger places. So it was kind of like that shocking. You know what I mean? We never rose up through like the second band and then the main support band just like changed overnight. And then immediately when we get to like 100,000 records, Victory starts like taking this really combative stance with us. Like you guys think you're too good to be on Victory. Like that, that's kind of like their it weirdly, just this weirdly like combative, which I never understood. Didn't they like start paying attention to you more too, which was probably kind of annoying. Like, Hey guys, how's this, how's it going? Or where they weren't before. Kind of, but like in this weird way where they weren't being, they were pushing the record. You know what I mean? Like it was suddenly in stores. It was in target. It was on the, you know, it's hard to say. Cause like kids won't understand. Like it was on like in the circular for Walmart or whatever. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean anything anymore, but CDs used to really sell. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, like, if you were in the circular, maybe it starts out and we were selling 10,000 copies of the CD a week, you know? Um, and back then, it's like, if you think about the math, it's like, those were $20 CDs in the store. They cost $1.10 to make. So, you used to really make money off of music. Like, like Victory was making a killing, you know? So, that's 10000 times $19, you know what I mean? That's, that's $19,000 a week, you know, off just the CDs or whatever. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, it, it was... It was, it was pretty, it was pretty wild. Um, but they decided to take like a really combative stance with us. Like you guys are the worst. You suck. You're nothing. We've already got a band that's going to replace you. They're called Taking Back Sunday, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if, if they were trying to like keep our heads in check because we were having such unexpected success 
but instead it kind of had the like oh, okay you want to fight let's fight <laughs> you know what i mean we were just like let's do this and then like if you guys hate us then like we'll show you you know that yeah that was sort of like where we went with it and um and so we ended up finding a loophole on our contract that said we could leave as long as we left for a major label so we started trying to find a major label we could leave for and um yeah just went into this kind of like let's meet with everybody and so many of the major label guys were the worst they were so horrible like we hated them so much and um you know we were basically all but across the finish line at island signing the contract and gary gersh um, meets with us for Interscope and is like, you could be the next Nirvana. And I signed Nirvana. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> Gary Gersh. <laughs> who could resist that? Who could resist that? We tell the guy at Island that was thinking about signing us. And he goes, you know, that's his only line. He told Jimmy's chicken shack, they're going to be the next Nirvana. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, whoa, wait. Okay. 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 You know what I mean? I came back to my senses where I was like, all right, it is like a very tempting offer to be thought of that way. But like, yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? People are going to tell us what, what we want to hear, you know, like, because we're legitimately selling a crazy amount of records out of nowhere. So it was a pretty wild lead into war all the time going into that record. Everybody loves us. I remember Lior Cohen who uh, ran the label telling spin when they asked him what he thought of us, he said, their feet don't touch the ground. And we were like, wow, <laughs> the guy that runs his label actually like likes us. You know what I mean? Like he thinks we're amazing. Um, yeah, I, I remember around around that time, War All the Time was just coming out or had just come out. And I was with some friends. You know, I, I was on a part of a tour that with a band that was out with Thursday. And I came home and I was like, me and my friends were like, man, they're going to be so huge. And I remember my girlfriend was like, you guys say that about every band. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. This is different. It really felt <laughs> it really felt big and special. Yeah, I think you know, out of the kind of basement bands there hadn't been like a band that had necessarily cracked like the the real like Billboard like success yet. You know, when when War All the Time came out it was a top 10 record. It was right behind Beyoncé. You know what I mean? Wow. Um so, you know, I think it was like 80 70 80,000 copies the first week. So it was like it was it was a big record. Um and then, and then everybody at Island left. Everybody, the whole staff left for Atlantic Records, and Universal didn't hire a new staff because obviously they felt like, well, we need to figure out who's going to run this place. You know, we got we got to bring in a good team. You know, we just lost our hit makers, but that meant we were going into our second single on this hugely successful record. We're going into war all the time, and there's no one there. There's no one to answer the calls. We. Somebody had told us that War All the Time, the video that we spent like $250,000 on, had, had gotten banned at MTV. And we were like, wow, why? Just for that line about carbon monoxide? Like, that's insane. Like, why not bleep it, you know? Later on, we find out that there was nobody even working at Island to bring them the video. MTV literally never got the video. <laughs> so they spent $250,000 only to have nobody like courier it to the channels. You know what I mean? Like, if you can think about like that, level of like there was just nobody there like it just all stopped no more ads bought no more radio spots no more like there's a lot of stuff that goes behind a big record you know a little record you can do word of mouth but a big record like that sort of pre-twitter pre-facebook pre, you know it's just like you had to spend money to get it out there which is okay because you made a ton of money you know it still sold you know four hundred thousand copies which is like a crazy amount of records for a band that sounds like thursday you know what i mean we don't sound like we belong on the radio we we're 
like a weird band. And you didn't uh, you didn't go soft either. You maintained uh, the sound and it even amped it up at times. Yeah, yeah. I think you know there's there's some more aggressive elements on War all the time than there were on on Full Collapse. Mostly just because we had been on tour for two years and we were like you know we we're kind of like at that stage where we we're just on fire and we wanted to we wanted to kill everybody. You know what I mean? That was kind of like the mindset. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was quite a weird time. Uh, I was definitely depressed. I think I had spent way too much time on the road. Um, I felt like I had written this really dark album. It was like a really dark period in history. It sort of felt like the beginning. It felt like the beginning of a never-ending war. I mean, you know, uh, 20 years later, it feels like that still probably was the beginning of a never-ending war. Um, yeah. But yeah, it just was a, a really dark time. And really, um, I was way too sensitive of a person to handle it in stride. I'll put it that way. I I can relate. I can relate. I um in Dan Ozzy's book Sellout. Yes. Uh, I remember reading about you guys were dealing with some guy at the label and he he wanted to push you in a certain direction and like maybe maybe they had these factory produced hit songs and he wanted you to go that route and have a single. Do I have that correct? <laughs> yeah, so when they finally did bring in a new, you know, label head, is this guy um LA Reed who is famous he's he's a hit maker legitimately like i'm not every time i tell this story it sounds like i'm bagging on the guy you know what i mean but like he's legitimately he's amazing at what he does and yeah i've heard that name yeah he's been on like one of those shows where he's like the the voice or something you know what i mean he's like people know that he's like a guy that knows his stuff so uh they bring him in and he's just done like i don't know christina aguilera and like a bunch of other big stuff and we're like we are doomed you know what i mean we're doomed like this guy's never gonna like us like there's no way so he comes to see us at warp tour and you know we kill because like at that point as a live band we were just like we're like devastatingly good we're so like fun to see you know what i mean yeah and um the crowd goes bananas they sing every word and like i get off the stage you know we're steaming off the stage and we get into the dressing room where it's like air conditioned and he just comes in and he is like you guys are stars. Like you are star. This is it. You're going to be the biggest band in the world. Like, you know, he's just freaking out. We're like, Whoa, maybe we're not done. You know what I mean? Like he was like, this is it. Like you have the thing, you have the thing that everybody wants and nobody has. All you need is songs. And oh. we're like, okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's a kind of weird thing to say, but like, okay. Uh, and he's like, so all we got to do is get, get some people to write some stuff for you. And like, it, it's done. It's based, this is done. Like writing hits is not a problem. I, he's like, I do it every day. You know what I mean? And legitimately like he did, you know what I mean? So he's like, we just find the right fit. You hear the song, you love it. It's, it's done. You guys are like huge. And we're like, yeah, but we write our own songs. You know, we don't really work with hit makers. We're not interested in that. Yeah. And I remember him going, Oh, okay. And that was it. Like, <laughs> just like that, that was it he was just like okay you're not gonna do it like you're not gonna be a big man and you guys do not write hits like you know what i mean like i could see in his eye that he was like that's that's the truth you don't write hits so if i don't get to write you some hits or get somebody else to write you some hits it's just not happening there's nothing to talk about you know what i mean like that was how quick he made the decision which is probably why he's so successful but it was still something that like i've only been able to look back you know in in the rear view and be like oh that was the moment like we were done you know what i mean like the label <laughs> was like nah uh-uh. <laughs> so you know it's weird i i feel like with most bands especially now 
you have to do that whole system to be like a mainstream big band. You know, like I feel there's all those like song factories where they have people working on hits Mm -hmm. and there's this collective and there's like two people at the top of it. Like I, I feel like you have to like buy into that whole thing to have a hit song in most cases. I think you're probably right. I think there's obviously like exceptions to the rule, but I think those exceptions where it's like, wow, and they can write is kind of like, all right, well then we'll get them to write some songs for us too. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, you don't get away from the system. You just, you find out what you become part of it. You find out which part of it you are. Yeah, exactly. Like Sia used to be one of those people who wrote hits for everybody. And then she's like, wait, I can, I can do it for myself. Right. Like I actually have like this crazy, beautiful voice that like people will freak out over. Maybe I should just, you know, it's like even Rihanna tries to sound like me when she sings my songs. Like maybe I should just try this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love. I I heard that interview where Sia she like the inflection she put on it. Like Rihanna just matched the inflection exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It's once you know which ones she wrote, it's it's so it's so easy. You know what I mean? You're like, oh yeah, diamonds. Like that's clearly you know. Um, yeah. But I I love Sia just because uh, Chandelier. You know, is a, is a sober anthem, which uh, I didn't realize at the time. I don't know if you knew that, but. Um, no, I'm, now I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, she, there's this part where she goes, one, two, three, one, two, three, drink. And that's because like when you get to the fourth step, everybody relapses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or or they just don't work the steps and relapse. And well, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors. Yeah, the four is tough. So I get it, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So you ended up putting out A City by the Light Divided. Mm-hmm on island rights but so i mean were they happy with that uh did they want to get rid of you because you weren't going to write hits with la reed like what was going on when that album was out Mm, yeah so like we made that record and we made it with dave fridman which is kind of like as left field as you get you know what i mean like it's definitely not what they were looking for it was like we're like we're going to be an artsy band like you know that's basically the way that they saw it is like they've given up (laughs) you know they don't even want to try to be popular they just want to do their own thing now with our money, I think is that's the way they saw it. So yeah, we finished the record and we were having trouble picking between singles. It was either going to be counting or it was going to be running from the rain. And I thought it should be counting. I thought that was like more upbeat and work better. And our A&R guy thought it should be running from the rain. He was like, it's an epic. It's a, it's a ballad. We didn't get to do war all the time because of, you know, the failure of the label last time. So like now it's time for us to hit our ballad, you know? So it's basically like, well, why don't we let the hit maker guy weigh in, you know? So they were like, we'll get you a, a meeting with the head of the label, LA, and, you know, you go in and talk to him. So I go in and I talk to LA and he has me into his office. And as soon he asked me about the record and I start telling him what the record's about and he opens up the paper and starts reading it between us. And I was like, oh, I... I think this is like some kind of a like show me how little I matter type of moment, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, this probably doesn't bode well. And then like he put the paper down and he called his secretary and she brought the Destiny's Child singles, like number ones, I think it's called. Yeah. And he took a highlighter and started highlighting every every number one that he wrote on the record. And it was like half. <laughs> 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 it was like after. I'm sure it was just some housekeeping he had to do while I was in his office, you know. Um <laughs> but uh but you know, like I don't know. 
I'm sure that I, I came off to him as like combative or like I was standoffish or something, but I was just kind of like, I don't really know what to do with this. You know, it's not that I don't respect you. It's just, it's like two different people speaking two different languages where it's like, you know, it's just not a lot to say. We don't really get each other, you know? Um, There's a better way to do that. That's the There's thing. a better way to do what he's trying to do. Yeah, that's the thing. I think he just, I just don't, because I'm not like really run on ego or like one upsmanship at all or like any of that, like I just don't respond to it. It just doesn't, it makes, it makes me want to laugh a little bit. Like it's so, it just seems so silly, you know? It's a turn off. Yeah, yeah. I just don't get it. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a good story to tell later. And then he's like, well, let's hear the two singles. And I was like, all right. So I play him running from the rain and he was like, strong, it's strong. I was like, okay. And I played him counting and the chorus hit and he goes, that's the one. He's like, that's a pretty good song. He's like, I don't think it's going to get you very far on the radio, but that's a pretty good song, you know? Like, that's good. I think, yeah, your writing's still improving, you know? And I was like, oh, that's nice, you know? He's like, cool. So we do want you to stay on if you want to. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, but we will let you go if you want to go, which is usually something that a major label won't do. You know, they own your catalog and they want to they'll sell it or they'll give it to a subsidiary you know what i mean it's like it's their asset they are they've already paid for it basically yeah um and he was like you know if you do another record with us your budget's like four hundred forty thousand dollars or whatever which is it's a lot of money by then we were doing records for a lot less than that so it would have been a lot in our pockets or you can leave you know and i i give you my word with a handshake whatever you want to do you can do and ever since then i've had like a lot of respect for him you know because i think that was a very um that was just he didn't have to do that you know what I mean? In the end, I think he was trying to make an impression on me and get me to see that he could help or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't think that he was actually coming from a, a, a bad place. It was just happening in a way that I didn't understand. So I couldn't even reason with him and say, like, we just don't do that. You know what I mean? Like music is, <laughs> let me get real dumb with you right now and say, like, music is a spiritual pursuit for us. And so, like, the idea of just, like, doing a hit, like, it's just like, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter to me. You know what I mean? Like, and then I could like tell him all that and maybe he would have been like respect, you know, but we never got there together. And instead, uh, he was very reasonable and very cool to us. And so I don't have any problem with that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was great narrative, Jeff, because I, you told the story about the highlighting and I was like, wow, this guy sounds very questionable. And then you, <laughs> you came in at the end with, you know, the handshake deal and I was like, oh, wow, I, I like him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's all right. <laughs> yeah. Thursday. Initial breakup around 2011? Yeah, I think it was 2012 was really when we got down into the gritty and like we're done playing. But in 2011, we announced it like this is it. So what was going on? How were our relationships? What was going on with you? What led to the initial breakup? Well, there's still one factor that we just don't really talk about because it's like so deeply personal to one of the members and their health. Um, but it became a thing where we weren't going to be able to tour with the same people if we wanted to keep touring. And at the time, it just felt like that was such a betrayal of like this thing that had just been the same people, like really in the trenches together, like through the the highs and the lows and the pain and the pleasure. And the, you know what I mean? Like really, really, really like we got to do it together or else we can't do it. And we had our first practice trying to do it without the person who wasn't feeling so good. And um, it just I don't know. It just felt really bad. You know, like, I don't know if it would have gotten better. It probably would have. But as a sensitive person, I was just like, yo, this is not working. 
this is not working. Like, I don't think I can do this anymore. This is not, it's not it. This is not the Thursday that like I respect and revere so much. And I just like, didn't want to become a parody. You know, I didn't want to become like a cash grab or a parody. I just, it just, you know, it's, I feel like this is like going to be written on my, uh, on my tombstone someday. But like, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm too sensitive. Stuff matters too much to me to like, to cheapen it, you know? So. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to hear you say that you're too sensitive because I think I am too. And I, I embrace it more where, I, uh-huh. well, sometimes I embrace it. Sometimes I try to hide it a lot. You know, I got uh-huh. voted most sensitive in my eighth grade yearbook, which wow. number one, why is that a category? Why is it a category? <laughs> and number two, I hated that <laughs> yeah. for so long. But uh, I, you know what? I think I like to think of it as uh, I just have higher perception and I can perceive yeah. uh, people's needs or wants or what they're trying to communicate, even if they're not directly communicating it more. So I, I, I'm happy to hear you just say that. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to embrace it more. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've learned from therapy over the years is that uh, sort of our greatest strengths and our greatest weaknesses are usually exactly the same thing. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like my whole career is probably dedicated to the fact that I'm a very sensitive person who like picks up on things. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 I am empathetic and I have a lot of care and feelings and, you know, I put that all into my work and that also makes it kind of a nightmare for some of the people in my life. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to control it better. No devotion. Yes. Yes. You teamed up with the remaining members of Lost Prophets yes. and uh, you guys formed No Devotion. And uh, how how do you get in touch with them? How does that conversation start? <laughs> Their manager, Karen, was a friend of mine. Um, and I saw her. I have a, friend, a very dear friend uh, named Danny Bowen who had this restaurant in New York called Mission Chinese Food, which is like, it was like the best restaurant in New York for a decade. It was so good. Um, and I used to just hang, hang out there with him a lot. And I saw her there one day and we were chatting and, uh, I was basically like, Oh my God, you gotta, you gotta tell me what's going on. This is before like the full scope of the crimes had been known. Yes. And so I was like, did he sleep with like a 16 year old girl by accident or something? You know what I mean? Like, what did he do? Like, you got to tell me scoop. You know what I mean? And she was just like, I don't even know. Like he's an idiot. You know what I mean? Basically just like, he's been nothing but trouble for years. He's like on drugs and he's like, everybody in the band fucking hates him. You know what I mean? But he's like such a pretty boy. And like, he's like the reason they're famous. It's just like, it's just kind of a bad situation. We'll see what it is. It's probably nothing. And then like, you know, later on it comes out how bad it is and it's like it's worse than like literally any sane person could have imagined and she's like but this stuff they're writing so good like would you would you join and i was like are you crazy like i'm not joining that shit show like i love Stu and mike they're really good people like i really like them but like i never liked lost profits like i never did and like this is certainly not the moment i'm gonna pick to like get involved you know what i mean like that's (laughs) crazy and she's like well i'm gonna send you the songs anyway and i was like you go ahead and send them and they'll sit in my email <laughs> you know what i mean like, <laughs> um so whatever she she sends them and i ignore them and i go on this tour the acoustic basement tour it's like a bunch of us in a van together playing acoustic songs it's like me brian marquis um finney from movie life koji like maddie from a lost for words it's just like a bunch of people you know what i mean people come in come out the transit guys come in and at one point I mentioned this story just as kind of like an anecdote, like, yeah, like blah, blah, blah. And Vinny is like, yo, Movie Life did tour with Lost Profits. Those guys are like really talented. 
like they're they like literally like the singer has bad taste and makes them play like like boy band hardcore shit but like <laughs> but like the rest of those guys are like really talented and i was like are you serious he's like no like they're fucking good he's like do you have the demo and i was like let me see so i find it and he's like put it on you know and it's like four it's like four instrumental songs you know and there's a note that's like you know what's his face couldn't figure out what to do with these or whatever you know so i was like all right like if they were even thinking about these being lost profit songs like i already know i'm not gonna like it so i put it on and it's like totally totally not what i expected like the first song which we've never done anything with was like an industrial like it sounded like a nine inch nail song it was insane and i was like whoa like oh man so the first song ends and Vinny just looks at me and then the second song starts and that song became like eyeshadow and i was like holy shit i love this song you know what i mean it just keeps like it keeps getting better and better as it goes and at the end of the four songs it's like totally silent and like nobody can kind of believe it and Vinny's like yo, do you mind if I like send them a tryout if you're not going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh man, like maybe, maybe I should try, like see if my voice fits on any of this. So I like at the next hotel, I sang uh, a demo for a song that became um, addition on the record. And like, they were like, cool. Like, it sounds good. Like, when do you want to meet up? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And Karen's like, just go meet them. They're such nice guys. And I was like, no, I, I know Mike and Stu. They're great. Like, no, you got to meet the rest of them. They're so nice. So they fly me out. And literally, as soon as they picked me up, they took me to the studio. And we're like, here's three, three more songs. Let's do them right now. And like, they were all watching. And I was like, what? This is not like, you know what I mean? It just kind of all happened. And they were like, still totally in denial. You know what I mean? Like they kind of were like, no, it's okay. He was always an asshole. We're glad he's gone. Like that guy fucking sucks. Like it'll, it'll be okay. You know? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. Like it's, it's pretty bad. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's really yeah. bad. Like the crimes are like really bad. Like, and it took them a while. You know what I mean? Like, like it, it was really like when he went to trial, I think, and the stuff that people were saying in the courtroom started coming out. And the stuff that he was saying in the courtroom were coming out. It was like, we were already, we had gone down the road of like the record was coming out. You know what I mean? And, or at least the single was coming out. Like we were basically already on the public stage and it was just like, suddenly these guys started to like, kind of break, like, like, like their, like their psyche couldn't handle what they were learning, you know? And they were trying to hold it together. They were such troopers, but it was like, it was so fucked up. It was so, it was so like, bad you know what i mean and like i'd see one of the guys and you have his hand bandaged up and i'd be like what happened and be like oh i broke all our platinum record plaques you know i punched out all the glass and threw them in the garbage because like i don't want to have anything to do with that ever again you know stuff like that where it's like man that's your life's work you know what i mean yeah so i really felt for those guys and i really like no division no devotion was like such a mission to like try and give them a second life you know but i think there's a couple things i'd I would have done different in hindsight. I would have waited a little longer, I think, just because it was so fast. And also, like, I couldn't have known. But, you know, the stuff with Martin um, came out and sort of collapsed the label, like, the week that our debut record came out. Yeah, that's a, that was, like, a historically just awful week. You, yeah. The stuff with Martin came out, the band started leaving, you had to fold, collect, and you got mugged yeah. and drugged. While yeah. trying to buy heroin in Germany the first night of the tour, yes? Turn, turns out you shouldn't try to do that. 
<laughs> well, you know, you know the uh, the addict in me is curious. Did did you ever end up getting any drugs? I did, but not not what I was looking for. You know what I mean? Like oh, it, yeah. it it was very like it was a really it was intense. Like people's reaction to me asking for that in Germany was like, I thought you wanted drugs. Like, what are you talking about, heroin? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was like, wow, do they not do they not do heroin in Germany? This is so crazy. Yeah, yeah. They were like, like I seriously offended a few drug dealers. <laughs> Isn't it funny how even in drug circles, once you mention that, people are like, whoa, whoa, yeah, like, yeah. buddy, what are you talking about? Yeah, they really are, yeah. <laughs> Were you ever in a foreign city, you know, US or abroad where you, where you did get the drugs you were looking for? I've managed to do that once or twice and it's the best feeling. It really is. Um, I was a, I used to, I used to um, unwisely uh, fly with it sometimes and go through customs with it somehow. Um, so, so stupidly, (laughs) but, um, yeah. Oh man, I'm a lucky guy that I got through that. Yeah. 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 Big time. So I was going to ask, how did you get through that week? Because the label folds and you know, there's all this stuff going on, but you're on heroin. So when you're on heroin, you can get through anything pretty much as long as you have more heroin. Yeah. But when I didn't have it, it was like that whole next week I kept being like, send me home. Like, get me a ticket, send me home. You know what I mean? Like, after they bailed me out or whatever. I don't know how they got me out, actually. Maybe they bailed me out, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But I got out of the German, I don't know what it was. Like, I started in the hospital, and then they let me, quote unquote, wait in the cell for my friend. Um, and, and the crazy, the German, one of the German cops said something so, <laughs> so bleak to me. And I like to think that it was like a translation thing. But I was like, where are my, where are my friends? You know? And he said, Time is your only friend now. Well, <laughs> when you're sitting alone in a cell, it's kind of like, damn, that's fucking hardcore. Time's my only friend. That's profound. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I kept on asking them to send me home, and instead so they're like, "No, nah, you got this." So they were like, putting me on stage every night, and that's just like withdrawing like a bastard, and also feeling like you know I got like lightly beat up in the whole ensuing melee, and uh, yeah, so I just felt terrible and. I don't know how I made it through that tour, but, uh, yeah. So what happened? You had to come home and just start shutting down the label. Like, yeah. did you have to talk to Martin? Like, what did you I have had to, to do? Yeah, I had to talk to everybody. I had to talk. And the main thing was I had to talk to all the bands and try to be like, this, this is okay. I know. And luckily I had, um, signed a deal like back then that every band owned their master. So like if they ever wanted to leave they could just take their master and go like they'd still owned it and that my whole pitch which like to his credit martin went for is that i was like we need to make a label that's so good that nobody will ever screw us over because they can't find a better label yeah that was my whole idea i was like just make it so good that nobody leaves (laughs) you know what i mean like that's a great idea (laughs) yeah who knows if it would have worked but you know it was a kind of utopian idea and um and it saved all those bands because uh, when the label collapsed, they could just be like, I'm going and I'm taking this record. See ya. Well, Permanence went on to win the Kerrang! album of the year. Yeah. That year, right? Did, yeah. So that must have felt good. It did. It felt good. Um, being at that ceremony was really interesting, you know, because we uh, Thursday had toured with the Deftones. So we got to the table next to them and kind of ca- I got to catch up with Chino and, and the guys a little bit. And, um, you know, everybody was pretty shocked when we won because I think like doubt we were definitely the underdog you know um and the the record was out of print by then so it was kind of like is this a first where an out of print record wins album of the year <laughs> <laughs> um 
I'm still really proud of that record. And I love the second Note of Ocean record too. But, um, but yeah, it's been a very uphill battle with that band. No Oblivion just came out last year in 2022. And to everyone listening, make sure you check it out. And Permanence too, everything. I really like it because, you know, it's it's different from Thursday and the heavier stuff and the more post-hardcore stuff. And I'm sure it's exciting for you, Jeff, because you get to do something a little differently, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so different from Thursday. And, you know, uh, I get to flex like kind of my natural singing range a little more. Um, with Thursday, I I sing in a sort of higher, more... Um, you know, more passionate, more frantic range, you know, which earned me the nickname tone Jeff. Cause people are like, he doesn't, you know, he's tone deaf. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but with no devotion, you know, it's like, I can, I can sort of, uh, sing in my natural range, which is, is quite lovely for me. I really enjoy it. When did you start talking to the guys about recording the new record? When does that come about? Oh, like around the same time I started the book. So uh-huh. like we worked on it for a few years. Um, yeah, it was strange. Like we had, we had the record basically finished. Like, I guess you would call it a demo at the time. I mean, it's the same, basically all the same recordings that ended up on the record, but it was sort of not finished. And I was like, let's finish this thing up and put it out, you know? And then COVID happened. And, uh, one of, you know, one of the band members still was still dealing with the trauma from everything that happened with the singer of their old band and basically had like a breakdown again. And, um, you know, I understand why it's like, it's a heavy thing to go through. So yeah, it took us a couple extra years to get to across the finish line. It feels like it was like the last, you know, when you see the marathon runners who get like a hundred feet from the the finish line and all of a sudden their legs don't work anymore and they're like shitting themselves on the side of it. That was kind of like what we were like with this record. It was like, we were so (laughs) close and, uh, and we just couldn't get it across the finish line. So we had to take a little extra time with it. Sorry, the Rona's kicking up. Oh no, that's okay. Oh yeah. I see. I, I forgot you had COVID and you're, you're here having this long conversation with me. Don't worry. We're we're almost at the finish line, so your legs will not give out and you will not be shitting yourself. <laughs> we'll I, see. I think. I think. <laughs> Is the curse lifted from the band or do we not know yet? Because I know you tried to play some gigs. You had a string of bad luck. There was more COVID. Yeah. There was a hotel fire. One of the band members had a family emergency and had to leave the tour. Yeah. Was that the last time you guys were together? Yeah, 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 it was. It was. It was really heavy. I, I'd like to believe that the the end of this calendar year, the curse lifts. That's what I'd like to believe. We, we'll find out. It has to, because we have to get out there and play these songs, right? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> United Nations. Yes. 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 Now, uh, as legend has it, uh-huh. uh, the initial lineup had a lot of heavy hitters. Yes. And uh, everyone was under contract except you currently, right? Yeah. I mean- how much of this stuff, looking back, I'm like, how much of that was even real? Is that true? Yeah, maybe it's just part of the lore. And there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting lore with this band that I didn't know about that I, I want to get into. But yeah, uh, yeah who, who was initially you and Daryl from Glassjaw? Who was it? Yeah, though he didn't end up on much of the first record. He is on it, but not on, not on all of it because he was having some stomach trouble when we were recording and wasn't able to finish with us. Um but also, uh, let's see, who else is on it? Uh, Jonah um, Bayer, who's Vanessa Bayer from SNL's little brother, older brother, older, older brother, and also a, a great music writer. Um, ben from Converge was playing drums. Um, you know, one of the, the truly great drummers of of our hardcore generation. The you know, really, it's like, what can you say about Ben from Converge? Like, oh my god, 
um you can't say enough good things yeah yeah incredible um i don't remember who else played on the first record i know that when we started playing it live jim carroll from hope conspiracy and everything and uh, i think he's in i think he's in american nightmare now maybe i'm not sure if he still is but he was in american nightmare he was playing bass with us lucas previn um was also playing guitar with us uh for a time uh ryan bland the singer of ache was also with us for some of those shows, early shows. Um, so it was kind of like it was kind of like a changing lineup a lot. Um, and then when we finished doing shows for uh, Nevermind the Bombings, then Ben and Jim left, and we got David and Zach from Pianos Become the Teeth, and that was like really kind of like the final form of the band. Um, and we did the next four years, and then they did a song without me called "Stairway to Mar-a-Lago with uh, with Garrison. I read an interesting story. Uh, you were a fan of the artist James Cauty. Yes, you tracked him down. You wanted him to do the artwork, right? Yeah. But he did it. Well, he said, "I would. Do, I'll do it." But you have to say you stole it from me because I don't want to end up in jail again. <laughs> again, exactly, because he had already gone to jail for his art. <laughs> he just like violates a lot of different copyright stuff, or what is yeah, it? Yeah, the the jail incident, I believe, was because his early works. He he was known for uh, uh, the Queen. He would paint a gas mask on her, and he would do it on the stamps, and then he would send the stamps through the mail. So that was technically mail fraud. Then I believe that he got out of that eventually by by actually designing a whole bunch of their stamps for the Royal Mail. Um, <laughs> so it was like a trade. And then he got in trouble again because he won some huge grant. I think it was like a million pounds and he burned it on the steps of parliament. I mean, he's like a real radical, this guy. You know what I mean? He doesn't believe in property. He's like a true crass style anarchist, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I heard about that money burning mm-hmm. thing before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, his old band, the KLF were sort of notorious too they went to like a mtv music awards thing and like threw out dead lambs and like and had fake machine guns and shot into the audience like yeah they've done some real wild stunts (laughs) that like you could not get away with today you know what i mean no they would have gotten killed today (laughs) they would have been sniped see you later um but yeah he did the art for the first record and it's it's pretty it's pretty controversial. Yeah, like, uh, you know, you were poised for greatness with United Nations, right? It shot up to the top of some list on MySpace and yeah. Hot Topic bought 20,000 copies uh-huh. to sell and were, were poised to do this thing. And then they called you and said, we can't use this record. We can't, you know, the layout, it, copyright infringements. Oh, we yeah. can't use it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, the cover of the album was The Beatles on Fire from Abbey Road. <laughs> and then inside it had Bugs Bunny wearing a suicide bomber vest. Uh, see that sounds cool to me yeah, no, to me i was like <laughs> hell yeah um but they were not having it and they had to because of a legal loophole that prevents them returning um what would be considered what like like stolen ip um they're not allowed to give it back to us because we might sell it again fraudulently they had to destroy it so they sent us these pictures of like a, a steamroller going over all the records it was kind of like it's kind of perverse, but like it sort of fit into the whole artwork. You know what I mean? It like just felt like, yeah, this is this is right. See, I, I just got an idea. I know it's way too late, but take that <laughs> picture of the steamroller rolling over the records and make that the, the layout. Cover. I know that should be the cover. I know I got to see if I can get that picture because that's kind of what we did. Like, so the next thing that we put out, because then we found out we were being sued by the actual United Nations. And we were like, whoa, like the record, record layout is like not the biggest problem here. You know what I mean? Like this is unreal. 
So we got a cease and desist from them. And we decided like, why don't we go record three songs? We'll sell them at shows wrapped in copies of the cease and desist letter, you know, just really push it over the top, like really get them mad, you know? That's so cool. <laughs> I, I, when I read that, I was like, fuck yeah. Like that's something Sean and Ink and Dagger would do. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah. You got to channel that a little bit, you know? <laughs> Uh, so what's the status with that band? Will you play again one day or is it just uh, inactive right now? I hope so. I hope we play again. You know, like we had this idea like, oh, we did the next four years. We should, you know, after four years is up, we should do another. And then I was like, wow, we really missed that already. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's been way more than four years. So, um, but yeah, no, we've been, we've been talking. We're all still in, in touch and we're friends and, uh, you know, a lot of life has happened in between, but um but yeah, I'd, I'd love the return of the United Nations. That'd be great. Especially since like musically that band is so, it's so easy. It's like, it's like we write, we write the songs in about as much time as it takes to play them, you know? So like, I, I do enjoy that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It just happens and then it's done and we're like, good. Like nobody's ever like that one part kind of sucks. Like nobody ever does that. It's like, yep. That's the worst part of being in a band is all the discussions and arrangements and all that stuff. So if you can cut that part out, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And nobody is ever like, is it good enough? It's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's fast. It's aggressive. It's fun. It's it's good. Yeah. Is it, and is, is it over quick if it's not good? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, let's recap. Now, Someone Who Isn't Me, your debut novel, is out now on Rose Books. Now, the first pressing is sold out, but I'm telling everybody out there, you know, there's resellers out there who have some in stock. You can get it. You can get it if you search on the internet. And Jeff, we want everybody to purchase the book and read it, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a super DIY punk press. Um, Chelsea Hodson put it out. And uh, her husband also, she's an amazing writer and she wanted to start a press that was super punk. And like, we are not using Amazon. We are not using Kindle. We are not, you know what I mean? Like, we're really trying to keep it like grassroots. Um, We're not using a major distributor. So it's like every book that you buy really helps the press and helps the next book that's coming out. And a lot of the business model is taken from Chelsea's husband's label, which is Youth Attack Records. Uh, Her husband is Mark, who sang for a band called Charles Bronson. And, oh. um, yeah, so we're keeping it really like the DIY spirit is alive in, in indie publishing right now. I love that. I love that. No Devotion released a new record last year, No Oblivion. We want everybody to check that out, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, come on. I'm so proud of it. So yeah, please do. It's great. It's great. I love it. And uh, any any shows planned for the future? Any discussion yeah. or anything? Yeah, Thursday's out. So Thursday's out on tour, uh, you know, January, February, we're doing our 20th anniversary uh, tour for the record War All the Time. We're bringing our friends and rival schools with us. And uh, and the opening band is a band called Many Eyes, which is Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die's new band. So I think it's a really cool lineup and uh, a little something for everybody. You know? What a tour. Wow. Yeah. New Thursday music. Now, we haven't had <laughs> a new record since 2011. and I, Long time now. That is the burning question. Have we... Have we introduced a new riff? Have we worked on a new song? What's going on? Oh yeah, yeah. We've we've done some. I mean, we've we've jammed so many times, but the the whole band agrees. Like, if it's not as good or better than anything we've ever done, then it's like not really worth putting out. You know what I mean? Like, nobody's trying to like reunion mania, emo revival. Let's make some money. Nobody wants to do that. It's like either it's amazing and it holds up, or it's just like it's never going to see the light of day. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Is we we keep jamming, but. Nothing nothing out there yet, so it gives you an idea where we're at. So we're jamming, but we don't have a song that's as good or better 
than anything else yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's bound to happen. Look at Quicksand. They came back. They've got some hits on those new records. I love Quicksand. They're they're, they're the best. They're greatest of all time for me. I'm I'm a fan. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, Jeff, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I I've been listening to you for a long time. I love everything you do, and I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Keith, it's been such a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, hope I see you soon. And there you have it. Jeff Rickley. Wow. Excellent, excellent conversation and a fantastic way to start off this new year on the show. First, let me say this. I really recommend his new novel, Someone Who Isn't Me. I really love the concepts of uh, different dimensions, dream worlds, liminal space, all that kind of stuff. I dig it. I dig it. It's something that interests me. So in the book, he's just going through this major ibogaine trip in his mind and getting to the root of his issues. And it's like this whole adventure within his mind. And that takes up a good portion of the book. And like I told him, you know, he's running around in neighborhoods I ran around in and getting into trouble and figuring things out. And I could really relate to it. It's a really great book. Pick it up, check it out. And listen, Thursday are just a one of a kind, once in a lifetime band. I still remember just out of nowhere, everyone's like, you got to see Thursday. You got to see Thursday. It's this great band. And Full Collapse was out. It was a very exciting time. And I have some personal history because I was out on a tour with them in 2003, right before War All the Time came out, or maybe it had already come out. I can't remember, but it was really exciting to see it firsthand and talk to the guys a little bit. And and look, Jeff has just done so much. No Devotion, United Nations. I know that Jeff loves Ink and Dagger just as much, if not more, than I do. And getting to hear the inside scoop about the reunion uh, was really awesome for me. So, fantastic conversation. You know, when I was editing the conversation, I went back and watched the band video for War All the Time that Jeff talked about. It's on YouTube. And it just brought me back to 20 years ago, out being on that tour, this record being new. And I got kind of sad thinking about everything. I was like, man, where did all the time go? How did we get so old? I used to be so young. The world used to be so big. Everything used to seem so strange and wonderful. And it's not really like that anymore. But I'm also happy because, well, one, I'm not young and stupid and out of control and broke and addicted to drugs anymore. So those are all good things. And you know what? I'm just happy that I have those memories and I got to go on those tours and I got to experience everything that I did. And I'm happy where I'm at now too. And I'm happy that Jeff came on the show. So thank you so much. So thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? So right now it's New Year's Eve as I record this. And you know what? My only plan for tonight is to play Destiny 2 with a friend later. I recently got into that game. We were looking for a multiplayer game to play, and it's a lot of fun. This has been my only day off for the entire vacation because there's been stuff to do every day. 
a lot of big interviews, a lot of prep for the interviews, a lot of recording, a lot of editing, a lot of stuff in my life to do outside. So it's nice to have a relatively quiet day, which is today, to relax, play some games, mess around online, and be here with you to record this show. Do we have any resolutions? What's your resolution? Mine is that I want to get my new band launched, right? We've been working on music. We've been recording music. I want to get our first release out there this year and play as many shows as I can in 2024. And it's going to be very hard, but I also want to double the podcast audience again. We doubled last year. I want to double it again this year. And if our calendar holds up, we just might be able to do that because the first two months of the show are looking insane right now. And I'm very, very excited. Also, since the last time I checked in, there's been a lot going on. I caught Piebald in Brooklyn a couple weeks ago at the Meadows. And that was an awesome gig. This band, Weekend Friends, opened. They're like an alt-punk, post-hardcore type band from Portland, Maine. And I really enjoyed them. And Piebald. Piebald is just classic. Super catchy. All those songs got stuck in my head again after seeing them. Long Nights, that's the jam. And American Hearts, you can't beat American Hearts. But they played a new song. They played some of the Christmas songs. Great varied set list. Really awesome to see them again. Haven't seen them since Furnace Fest. 2021. And shout out to Dana Bolin for getting me into the show. You recognize him as the man running around and hitting the cowbell on the stage while they're playing. And of course, he is host of Two Week Notice Podcast. So if you haven't checked out his podcast, do it. He's got a lot of great guests on there, and it's a great show. And then last night in Manhattan, I saw This Will Destroy You. Now, This was the 10-year anniversary of their record, Tunnel Blanket. And I'll never forget the first time I saw them when they played songs from this record, okay? It was like 2011. The last time I saw them was around 2008, 2009, something in there. They were mostly playing material from the 2007 self-titled record, right? Now, this is where they started to change and get like moodier and darker and a little heavier. And, but it was still kind of in the post-rock area that we expect from This Will Destroy You. So then I see them again in 2011, and I have no idea what to expect. I'm expecting the stuff I've heard and the This Will Destroy You that I know. And I think they opened the show with Black Dunes. And we were just floored. It was insane. It was just incredibly heavy and, and not what we were expecting from the band. I'll never forget that show. So when I saw... They were playing a 10-year anniversary show for this record. I had to go, and they had a full orchestra, violin players, harp, three guitar players. They had George Clark from Deaf Heaven on guest vocals. I mean, come on. It was insane. Insane. Fantastic show. Really great way to close out 2023, my last show of the year. And Christopher Tignor opened the show. He was one of the guys playing violin with the band. And I think maybe he played on the record too. Uh, he was great too. He would play violin and loop it and there would be these drum beats and then he would play triangles and loop in violin. I was captivated the whole time. It was really good. Really good. So let's move into the new scene community hour. 
Now, at that piebald show that I told you about, I ran into a guy named Nick who recognized me from the show. And he actually emailed me and Tommy a while ago, and I'm going to read that email for you now. Nick says, Keith and Tommy, sup guys, I'm Nick, and I've been a longtime listener of the Northeast Scene New Scene Podcast. I've been meaning to write in for a while because I grew up in Connecticut in the early 2000s, going to metal hardcore shows, and This Day Forward and A Life Once Lost were two bands I idolized as a teenager. I actually recall seeing both of those bands play together at a small karate school in Waterbury, Connecticut in 2002. The real reason I'm writing in is that, like Keith, I became enamored by post-rock at a certain point in my life, and I now play in a post-rock band. I made the journey from Chugs to Endless Reverb. Ah, yes, that is the path. So Nick is in a band called Wes Meets West. It's a post-rock band. They're actually playing post-festival this year, later this year. That's a great festival, so cool to see them on that. And uh, check them out. I'm going to add a track of theirs to the New Scene 2024 Spotify playlist. So you can check them out there. You can check out all of our guests. And you can check out all of my recommendations. Nick also sent a video that he shot a long time ago of A Life Once Lost playing The Wicked Will Rot way back in 2004. And it's an awesome video. If you search A Life Once Lost... The Wicked Will Rot, 8-24-04. Nick's YouTube account is Food for Crows. Check it out. It's a good throwback. We were just talking about A Life Once Lost in my group text, and uh, I think the consensus was Hunter is the overall strongest album. That's a classic. I still go back and listen to that one from time to time. So Nick, very nice to meet you, and thanks for writing. And listen, just uh, as a reminder, everybody, I really need to get us over 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't, if you have an iPhone, look for the podcast app, search the new scene, scroll down a little bit, just hit the five-star button. And if you write a review, I'll read it during this section of the show right here. Thank you, everybody, for your continued support of the show. We doubled our audience again in 2023. And like I mentioned earlier, I want to do it again this year. All right. So that brings us to the end of the show. And I have another music recommendation for you here. The band Minor Movements. The song Where You're Looking From. It's from their 2019 record, Bloom. I have this little tradition on New Year's Eve where I go down to the waterfront in Williamsburg And I sit there and I listen to this song and I think about the year or whatever else is going on. And then I come home. And this whole record is fantastic. So make sure you check it out. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.